0: You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm, Trowers & Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and
1: ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Trowers & Hamlins podcast. Uh, My name is Elias Mubarak, and I head up the firm's banking and finance practice in Malaysia. But you listeners are not really interested in me, you're interested in our guest, one of the superstars of the Malaysian banking world, Arsalan Ahmed, also known as Oz. Currently the CEO of Araji Bank, Oz has worked across Europe, the GCC and Southeast Asia. From analyst to chief executive, he's been innovating and championing change that delivers progress for an industry and the community it serves along the way. He is recognized as a leader in the debt capital market space particularly Islamic debt capital markets, and has been involved in many world's first deals, including overseeing the world's first United Nations sustainable development goals to Code used by HSBC. He's also an industry leader in banking for value-based intermediation or value-based banking and has championed adapting banking practices for greater social and environmental impact. Oz, it's a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us today for our podcast on how ESG considerations are impacting the banking sector. Thank you very much, Elias. And I have to admit, this is my first ever podcast. So uh,
0: really, thank you for the opportunity. And yeah, really looking forward to having the conversation. And I think it's an important one.
1: Absolutely. Uh, It is an important one. And I am very much looking forward to having that conversation as well. And before we turn to how environmental, social, and governance principles and considerations are affecting financial institutions and and the nature of capital generally, really. One thing I did want to say is that our firm, as a legal services provider, is seeing an increasing focus on ESG credentials when it comes to winning work. Our clients want us to be able to demonstrate that our principles align with theirs when it comes to ESG. And in this context, we've undertaken a holistic review of our business and practices, And we've sought to develop and implement a comprehensive set of ESG policies. These might include incentives to encourage sustainable commuting or introducing agile working practices to reduce our carbon footprint, as well as focusing on accounting for social considerations, uh, which in some ways actually can be harder or more challenging to implement and measure. Um, So we continue to build on the good work we've done in this area, particularly with regards to quality, diversity and inclusion policies. Externally, we're working with on a number of exciting initiatives. Um, For example, in the UK, we've co-sponsored and worked with the good economy and other sector experts on a white paper aimed at building a standard approach in the affordable housing finance sector to ESG reporting. So Oz, turning to you, um, banks are the crossroads really of capital, how Are ESG considerations actually changing the nature of capital?
0: So it is very much the case that the nature of capital is changing. And I suppose everyone will say, well, what's that then? I mean, did suddenly capital grow a conscience overnight? (laughs) Suddenly that's something that happened. And um, I think the actual answer to the change of nature of capital is that maybe some of it has had a conscience change. But there is something broader that is driving this change of nature of capital. And it actually impacts, I would say, the majority of um, organizations. And and that would be worldwide. And that's like, wow, what an amazing claim. (laughs) Why would that be the case? And the reason for it is that I think that there is an acknowledgement now that there are significant environmental and social issues that uh, are existential in nature, and we could go on and talk about them, but I think that there's certainly an acknowledgement that something is happening. And if we look at capital around the world, and we look, say, for example, at the top 400 asset managers, um, IPE notice, and this is slightly older um, figures, but over 60 trillion US dollars was managed by the top 400 asset managers and over 20 trillion from the top 10. And that's a huge amount of money. Let's put that into context for people. The overall outstanding traded debt is around 200 trillion and GDP you know, around 90 trillion. So the one thing that all of these asset managers have in common, whether they invest in debt, whether they invest in equity, is that they cannot diversify away from the impact of climate and social issues, meaning they can't invest underwater and get a return. So even if you were the begotten child of the Friedman Doctrine, you would naturally have to be part of the equation and part of the discussion to address these existential issues. And therefore, these firms... And BlackRock is a very good example and others are saying, well, we need to be part of the decision making process to make sure that assets that we've invested in are making positive steps to have a positive impact when it comes to environmental and social issues. So if you then take that analogy of these large asset managers around not being able to diversify away those problematic social and environmental things that are popping up and in, uh, impact that's coming because they're so broadly invested. Well, isn't that true of actually any major fund in a, uh, in a country? Let's take, for example, Malaysia, PNB, what, Khazana, EPF, do they not have the same issue? And they absolutely do. So when we talk about the change of nature in capital, capital is seeking things that will give a safer uh, return and something with ESG credentials will do that. And because we've seen that shift, we, it demonstrates that organizations need to take this agenda seriously. And if people want to put a finer point on this, research that was done through Harvard and London Business School by um, Iona and Seraphin actually demonstrates that if you invest in stocks that are kind of sustainability-weighted versus non, over a period of time, and they did some research from 1993 to 2010 on this in Management Science, the 2014 report, it shows that if you had put $1 of investment into these kind of regular stocks, um, you would get, by the end of the period, 2010, 15.4 15.4 US dollars as a return. Whereas if you had the stock return for something that was in these more weighted sustainability stocks will be 22.6. So basically in summary, the change of nature of capital is happening. There might be some of it that is done because of a conscience, conscience driven, but some of it is necessity driven. And we're objectively seeing the impact of this change through stock returns, through access to capital in the debt capital markets as well, and
1: increasingly so through the banking market. That's fascinating, Oz. How how would you say that ESG considerations differ for equity versus debt funders?
0: So when we look at equity, what is a traded company looking for? They're looking for a higher level of liquidity. They're looking for interest to a larger investor pool to help to make their multiples be better. So if you're saying that I'm a company that has a great product and that's great and that fits an investor profile. If you're saying I've got a company with great products or services that we offer, uh, a great business, but also I can demonstrate sustainability credentials because of this change of nature of capital and the allocation of things that are of pools of money towards investing in something that has a sustainability credential, guess what? you have greater access to equity investors, and that, for example, improves your share price. But I think that there is a more fundamental point when it comes to equity that I think is important for people to take away. And what that is, is around the difference between actually getting better market multiples, as an example, market valuation multiples, price to book, which we have just discussed. And then there's a separate point that's regarding to return on capital or uh, significant returns to the fundamental business, not just positioning for access. I'll, I'll explain the difference. If you've got an organization that's got great products and services and also demonstrates somehow through non financial disclosures that they tick some boxes, you have some benefit there. But organizations that truly put a purpose around what they do regarding sustainability will actually get better return on capital and people will say well how is that possible let's let let me give you an example i sometimes do this poll when i'm doing some talks or a training or so on and so forth and i say to the say to the people you know it's usually in malaysia now everybody's familiar with the e-hailing app and it's typically grab and i say to them okay so you've got grab and all of a sudden it's announced that Uber is making a return called Uber 2. And it's not uh, you know, Uber written on a black background. It's Uber written on a green background. And what's different when they're coming back is that all of their cars will be hybrid or sustainable. Now, it's the same type of cars. It's the same pricing. It's the you know, same you know, kind of apps uh, experience and so on and so forth. And I said, now you've got both apps and you're ready to go somewhere. You're going out. Which app would you open? And it is actually rather unsurprising to find that in most of the cases, 70% of people will open the app for Uber 2. All else being equal, they will take something sustainable. And the worst result I've ever had is 30% of people saying they've opened Uber 2 over Grab. Now, what does that mean? What it means for Uber 2 is an ability to enter a market and gain market share. And what it means for Grab is that they'll lose market share. And... And that is a sustainability and a sustainability strategy at the purpose of your organization can help you protect market share and can actually help you grow market share, therefore increasing your potential return on capital. So when we're talking about equity, there's the positioning point, which is, hey, look at the credentials I've got and attracting capital by ticking boxes. But then there's the purpose of an organization genuinely returning better long-term return on uh, a capital and people might say well how many industries can you apply it to well unilever through lipton applied it successfully to tea so if they can do that one of the most commoditized uh, kind of products out there pretty much anybody uh, can do it now moving to debt debt is a similar story and i like to use the example of the sukuk market which is Back in the day, what was the pitch? And I did quite a lot of them to issuers. And historically, I thought, you know, uh, let's pitch for the supporting the growth of the Islamic finance market. And that had some success. But the thing that had constant success was the fact that, look, you've got a rating of X, Y and Z. That's interesting to investors. But the Sukuk investors can only take Islamic. So if you take them, well, you'll probably get get tighter pricing. And by the way, they're chunky investors. So you probably anchor your transaction. Now, you extend that story to uh, uh, sustainable issuances, green or otherwise. You will have what they call different shades of green, dark green, light green investors. You're increasing your um, investor base. And as a result, what you can do is put tension within your pricing. You can also potentially issue more safely in a more volatile environment in that format. So that's what's happening with the debt market. and. If you want, I can also talk about the benefits in now the banking market, which is nascent. But I know that, for example, Trower Hamlins has actually worked on a, a banking product linked to sustainability. And I'm happy to talk on the benefits of those.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. Um, we did recently advise the Guinness Partnership, which is the Housing Association of the UK, on a sustainability linked facility provided by Sumitomo and Sumitomo Banking Corporation. Um, who also acted as, in quotes, sustainable loan coordinator, which is actually a role I hadn't come across before until that transaction. And the way it worked was that the association had to meet certain um, sustainability-linked targets. And if it did, then the margin and commitment fees would be reduced in that particular, f- of you know, in the upcoming financial year. So I'd be delighted if you could talk to us a bit more about those kinds of products that you're seeing coming to market.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, a, a, it's an evolving landscape. And I think that the example of the sustainably linked financing that uh, Trower Hamlin has been part of is uh, the one I like the most, by the way, when it comes to loans and financing. And the reason I say that is that in my mind, I kind of have these almost pathways to sustainability. And it started out back in the day as um, this what I call category one, which is landing point. This is a very specific kind of standard, an ICMA, a green standard, and you have to adhere to these pillars. And one of the things in the early days, um, and it certainly has benefit, and it's very robust as a standard, I always felt that it was not very inclusive uh, because the way that I looked at things is that if you are, for example, an oil and gas company, people may think, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you're goners in this kind of new sustainable financing. But I disagree with that because I think that everybody has an ability to be slightly better. There may be some industries that never get to a standard of, well, this is, you know, crossing a threshold of a sustainable future, of a way to support the transition to a low-carbon economy. But it doesn't mean they can't do something better. And what sustainability-linked loans do is say, hey, look, we're going to look at your business, and yes, there will be some kind of process of auditing, you know, the the progress that you're making in a reasonable and also um, robust enough way. But we want you to get from A to B, where A to B represents progress for you. And I think that that's why sustainability linked loans are, for me, one of the most inclusive ways of actually involving people within the sustainability finance journey and that's like kind of a message to kind of all folks out there saying how can i start start with that product even for example if you don't have a sustainability strategy even if you think your business might not lend itself well to uh, such a structure you will find a way to look at your business and see what can you do better from an objective sustainability point of view and potentially benefit from a reduction in pricing. And I think that that's, um, you know, for me, sustainability-linked loans. And that, for me, is what I call category two. And category two is this transition category. So category one was this landing point, and category two was transition. And then um, the last category that I kind of put this in is... um, almost, uh, it's it's called efficiency. And that's where you're looking at an organization that says that for everything that I extract from raw materials or whatever it might be into my business, I find a way of replacing it back. And this to me is uh, this idea of edging people along into a circular uh, economy. And the banking system hasn't innovated for a product for that that I'm aware of. And I think that that's also another area from the bank financing. So just to summarise those, you had the kind of landing point stuff. It specifically addresses something with a specific already recognised by an association or a body set of standards. There's a piece on transition that's really for everybody and everybody can do something and benefit from potentially cheaper financing. And then there's a part around this kind of move to the extract, use and dispose economy to the circular economy where I feel that the banking sector can innovate towards what the shape and form of that is, I don't know yet, but I'm confident that over the years to come, we will find uh, a structure that helps through capital move from an extract to a circular economy.
1: What you were saying about the phase two issues um, really resonates, I think, with me, because when we speak to a lot of our clients, particularly of the course, who want to start their ESG journey, actually, when you delve down into their business, they're already doing quite a lot of activities and implementing quite a lot of practices that actually do have positive environmental or particularly social impacts, but they just haven't thought of them as ESG or they haven't branded them as ESG. And with a few adjustments, you know, looking a bit more closely at supply chain, for example, or looking at, you know, towards a slightly more efficient way of uh, energy consumption, they suddenly make a giant leap into, you know, a genuine sustainable business that can Credibly market its credentials and attract that capital that you were talking about. So it's really a matter of engaging, I think, with a lot of these organizations to move them into that evolutionary process you described and towards that phase three. How would you want financial institutions to engage with, with your obligors or, or issuers on these sort of ESG related considerations?
0: To me, certainly. I think it starts with your frontline staff, your RMs. For them to understand this agenda in a more broad sense to understand where the value is driven from to be able to have conversations with customers so where is where, so we've touched on them already right it's on a few of them we mm. effectively what do we talk about when we said what was that difference between the 15.4 us dollars versus the 22.8 or uh, six us dollars difference in those companies how was that differential value driven we touched on strategy and innovation right with that idea of the e-hailing point. It was a very basic one, but there's an area of strategy and innovation. There was a point we spoke about around access to capital, and we had different forms of it. Don't crowd yourself out, have access to, to, to the changing capital. And then a, a part that you've touched on is around making their supply chains more robust. We kind of That kind of was the Lipton story as well. And actually mm. what that is around is risk management. Right, so for RMs to be able to talk to customers to understand how sustainability can have an impact on a customer's strategy how they can innovate how it impacts their access to capital and also risk management then actually when speaking to the customer it's a discussion that has more um value than guess what rate i've got today (laughs) uh, (laughs) right Um, it's like we've got this new product um and it's really having that conversation to say one are they aware right is is it something that they're aware of and almost if you think about some of the categorizations that we've discussed around the capital point well you've almost got all listed customers straight away that's instantaneously there as customers to talk to you have customers for example who provide something in a supply chain where the end point, and think about this from a Malaysia perspective, where there's a lot of exporters, where are they exporting to? They're exporting to places such as, for example, China, Europe, and US. All three of those geographies are quite progressive on the sustainability agenda. And and, and by that, the companies, I mean, there that are, and, and in some cases, the governments as well. So when talking to customers, making them aware of the role that sustainability plays in their business. Having them aware of that and then kind of linking that to pathways for success when it comes to financings or when it comes to access to different equity pools or debt pools or banking pools, that's the kind of journey to go down. And when you get to the cheat sheet position, it's literally Why don't we work on this? Because we can structure a product that might see you have a ratchet down of kind of your rate, your interest or profit rate payment. And we can do this together by looking at your business and identifying areas of improvement. And I think so those to me are the kind of ways that banks need to engage. The education certainly of the RMs to be able to understand their client's business from a sustainability perspective and giving them an easy entry point product. Uh, that allows them to uh, see the benefits of what they're doing. Honestly, when I've done this with clients, not only have been able to structure a great product for them, but, you know, they've been surprised at how much media attention it gets versus what they otherwise <laughs> do. Uh, so that's, that, that's also an upside.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think particularly in the ASEAN region, Southeast Asia, generally, uh, I think the ESG journey is, well, would you actually, maybe that's a question for you. Would it be fair to say that the ESG journey is sort of in a, in a slightly earlier stage compared to, uh, for example, Europe or, or the US? And is that why obligors or, or borrowers in, in the Southeast Asian region get more press attention for these initiatives?
0: Well, I mean, I certainly would say it is an early stage. I think that that's true. Um, I also would say that it's not found its shape and form. And I'll I'll explain what I mean by that. When we talk about ESG or sustainability, most people are thinking about climate change. Mm -hmm. Even when we talk about it in public, even though in 2015 there was the launch of the UN SDGs, most people would talk about the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement was a UN framework Convention on Climate Change conference, and it was held in 2015. The agreement is typically known as the COP21 Paris Climate Agreement. And people would recognize that COP21, the Paris Agreement. That was on climate change. But yet in 2015, we had the UN SDGs as well, which is much broader than climate change, significantly so. And what I think from an emerging markets perspective is that emerging markets have realities that... Developed markets' ideals don't jive with perfectly. What do I mean by that? Most of the emerging markets' considerations are actually social-related matters. Because you have to have a roof over your head, a full belly, and some security, and something a little extra than that, in order for you to really care what's happening in the climate. Because your needs are so immediate and if you speak to folks within emerging markets and if you t- take ASEAN for an example with majority of emerging markets that narrative would resonate far more to the everyday person than the issues related to climate change so when i say that they certainly have started uh, later than the, the you know kind of european and other economies i would certainly say that there is a process that needs to happen to find their feet, find their form of what that ESG agenda looks like. And my sense is that it's going to be focused more on social issues in comparison to other markets that have um, had an earlier start, particularly in developed markets.
1: That seems to be my sense as well. And I, I think, so sort of, sort of for example, I think earlier this year, um, finance ministers and central bank governors from, from a number of ASEAN countries endorsed the development of an ASEAN taxonomy for sustainable finance. So it would effectively follow on the footsteps of the European taxonomy, but with obviously obviously being tailored to the specific needs of ASEAN economies. And, and as you mentioned, the opinion is that that taxonomy will be far more focused on the social impact criteria and development of societies generally. Although we're not expected to get sort of a full set of that taxonomy during this year probably will be next year, which means there doesn't appear to be a standard set of criteria within the ASEAN region when it comes to measuring ESG and, and ESG policies. From your perspective, what should be the key considerations when it comes to evaluating an of the of businesses' green credentials or ESG credentials?
0: Yeah, I think that um, I'll take that in two parts. One of them is around the taxonomies. And let's start with climate. Um, because that's something that's been more uh, popular. So, for example, the climate change and principle-based taxonomy that BNM released for Malaysia, if you look at that, it's well-structured, it's something that covers what needs to be covered, but it clearly is something that allows scope, where it's not overly prescriptive, and it also understands the requirements within Malaysia as a country when it comes to the need to have... Capital still flowing in the economy without trying to restrict it with a standard that's not implementable in Malaysia. So, so, I think that certainly ASEAN countries and I think other developed countries are pushing back. I think that when we talk about formulating what that means from a social perspective, it's less clear when you have that type of taxonomy. But I certainly think that countries. Becoming more discerning around the UN SDGs that they are going to be focusing on for their local economies. And I think that where folks are able to align with country level SDG commitments, they typically would be more holistically looking at the needs of the country as opposed to a prescribed ideal from somewhere else. So that's kind of on the taxonomy. And I actually see that a lot more in the decision makers within emerging markets, and I feel that that is the appropriate way uh, forward. Now, of course, if there is a need to get an emerging market to specifically do something to address a global matter, I think there are mechanisms to bring parties to the table, and I think that those are the kind of open discussions that need to, to happen whilst everyone fully acknowledges and wants to be of uh, progress and change. When it comes to obligers, again, What I find is that you will be able to use different existing tools out there to be able to start to look at what your customers do and how aligned that is. I'll give you an example. The SASB materiality map, the SASB is the Sustainable Accounting Standard Board, and they have a materiality map with these broad kind of bisector, firstly, and then specific Types of uh, sustainability considerations to look at for a sector. And I find that to be a good starting guide for anybody. It doesn't take very long because I'm just kind of have a look over and click through and see what's there. In addition, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as well. There's 17 of them, but there's hundreds of objectives underneath them. It is very easy for companies, particularly in Malaysia, you can reach out to the UN Global Compact and they will be willing to help you in terms of uh, your business and understanding it so there's lots of um, levers and things that are out there by bodies and supranationals for people to start to understand sustainability when it comes to their business and after they've done that then being able to talk to banks who understand sustainability well and in malaysia there are many for example any of the banks that are part of the value-based intermediation community of practitioners, which is run by the Islamic banks here, will be able to then engage with customers to talk about financing when it comes to sustainability.
1: Well, that was part one of our discussion with Oz Ahmed on how ESG is impacting the financial sector. Please join us for part two coming up.
0: You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com
1: and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers, or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.